Hello, my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about a major figure of cinema. That's my man, Ron Howard. Ron Howard pops the clutch and tells the world to eat his dust. (laughs) And we wanted to do this episode because Ron Howard recently took over directing the Han Solo film with only three weeks of photography left. Mm. Because when I think of Chris Miller and Phil Lord, I think of Ron Howard. When when I think of a a guy who could be a fixer and not rock the boat it's it's ron howard so we're not going to talk too much about ron howard's acting career he was on happy days the andy he was griffith, on the griffith show. show because he even says it himself that all he wanted to be was a director he's a man that when you read interviews with him or you listen to his commentary tracks he's genuinely passionate about it as much as you could easily throw him in the hack category <laughs> we will we will yeah <laughs> He's he like loves making movies. He like he even made short films before he made his first picture, Grand Theft Auto. And the story behind that is actually pretty funny. While he was on Happy Days and I don't know before or after American Graffiti, after uh, American Graffiti. Uh he starred in a film for Roger Corman's exploitation uh studio New World Pictures. The movie was called Eat My Dust, directed by Charles B. Griffith, the, the great Charles B. Griffith, writer of Little Shop of Horrors and A Bucket of Blood. And it was a car crash car chase movie, uh and it did extremely well on the drive-in circuit and according to Ron Howard the main reason he did it was because if it was a success, uh, he thought he could convince Roger Corman to let him direct a movie. Mm-hmm. And Eat My Dust came out and became one of New World Pictures' most popular movies, thanks to the fact that Ron Howard was a huge star at the time. A- appearing in this little cheap picture. And Corman says that he believes Eat My Dust also created like the teenagers on the lamb genre, which come no, on. No, it didn't. Bonnie it and Clyde. <laughs> and AIP and all their teenage pictures. Come on, Corman. No, but it created the Ron Howard crashing cars genre, which lasted two films so ron howard said listen eat my dust is a huge success you want a sequel i will star in that sequel and ask no extra money if you let me write and direct it Mm -hmm. and roger corbin thought about it and dollar signs appeared in his eyes like a looney tunes character and he went sure whatever and ron howard got to make his first film grand theft auto which i believe and this is going to sound like a contrarian thing to say but i genuinely believe it's one of his best and most enjoyable films i think it's without a doubt one of his most fun films yeah it's kind of a has a bit of an it's a mad mad world vibe to it it has a really simple premise that just keeps moving and moving which is ron howard and his girlfriend want to go get eloped uh in las vegas so they jump in his girlfriend's car and start driving which causes everybody and their mother to chase after them in cars because his girlfriend uh comes from a rich family they don't want her marrying uh, a poor boy like ron howard she betrothed to a goofy guy who uh rides horses i guess uh it's been a while since i've seen it so what you get is ice cream trucks crazy preachers uh clint howard of course uh there's don who the hell's that radio announcer guy Don Steele. Don, the real Don Steele, who kind of like, he is to this movie what Samuel L. Jackson is to do the right thing. Yeah, where he just narrates all of it. Uh, in his inimitable style. <laughs> and the movie was sold, basically, if you watch the trailer on the premise that you're going to get to see a Rolls Royce get destroyed, you're going to get to see all these cars destroyed. 
And said a big demolition derby. And Ron Howard, uh, the reason that he wrote this script as well was because he could just sit in a car the entire time, shoot all the scenes in two days, and direct the rest of it. So have you heard, I'm sure you've heard it, but the story that Ron Howard often tells about working with Roger Corman, where they were shooting the demolition derby scene, this was supposed to be the big climax of the movie, the big spectacular, and he had an audience of about 30 people. And he said, I need at least another 30 people to make this work. And he begged and pleaded to Roger Corman to give him another 30. And Roger Corman said, listen, Ron, you're going to have to work with only 30 people. However, if you do a good job on this picture, you'll never have to work for me again. <laughs> and Ron Howard did not. <laughs> yeah. After Grand Theft Auto came out and did very well financially. Ron Howard directed a bunch of TV movies. We didn't watch any of those. Yeah, why would you? <laughs> but we did watch Night Shift. You watched it. I watched half of it after Birdman came out because I thought... <laughs> You're like, I need that Michael Keaton fix who yeah. stars in it. And then I saw half of it and I was like, I'm good. Well, Night Shift is not a good movie. Even though there's an undercurrent of like reappreciation going around. Really? Well... Night Shift is an interesting artifact from the era when Henry Winkler could headline a major studio comedy. Playing a Woody Allen-style character. And Michael Keaton is sort of the Kramer-esque uh, character in the film. The two of them work at a morgue, which, isn't it, it becomes a brothel? It does. Yeah, and Michael Keaton is full Michael Keaton in this film. Like, you see him and it's like a star is born. Honestly... I love Michael Keaton. I bow to no one in my love of Michael Keaton. I like it when the Michael Keatonness is applied uh, with a scalpel as opposed to a sledgehammer. Which is funny because Ron Howard is probably one of the directors who's worked with Michael Keaton the most. Yeah. Like they're besties, I guess. I think Maybe because Ron Howard's just like, yeah, get out of your way, Keat. You just do whatever you want to do. We watched the paper last week and it is another full on Michael Keaton performance. <laughs> all the little affectations, all the hand gestures, the, the dumb shit he does with his face. Well, you know, now that you bring up the paper and we're talking about Night Shift, I think that both of them have traits that you will see in Ron Howard's cinema going forward. The mediocrity. <laughs> A kind of airlessness to what's going on. <laughs> the shocking lack of jokes. Yes. Like, Ron Howard is a man who I would say the majority of his uh, filmography could be categorized as comedies. And there's no jokes in his films. I don't understand. When I think of Ron Howard, I often think of this article that Kirk Honeycutt, uh, who's a critic, I think he wrote for The Hollywood Reporter or a paper like that. Uh, he, he wrote this after In the Heart of the Sea came out. And he said, one admires In the Heart of the Sea, but doesn't thrill to it. And then he compares it to two other movies. He's The Revenant, which he likes, and The Hateful Eight, which he doesn't like. And he says, love him or hate him, these films come about because a filmmaker has a blood passion to tell these stories. To take a viewer on a cinematic journey to a place never before visited. A Ron Howard film simply feels like his latest Hollywood project. And I want to know why that is. Because it's not a lack of passion from Ron Howard's part, why these movies are so kind of limp. I wouldn't call it passion. Well, I think he is passionate about what he's uh, making. He's the guy who likes telling stories. Is okay. that passion? Yes, because he feels a drive to need to do that. An unpassionless man would not star in a Roger Corman movie to get his directorial debut. Okay, he's a passionate careerist. Yes. He, he was passionate to become a director and be on set and tell stories that he likes. Yeah. But th those individual stories... Uh, you know, they're they're just stories that he likes. But it's like Clint Eastwood, you know? But people Who love I like better. Ron Howard movies. I mean, come on. Like, yeah. Clint Eastwood is undoubtedly yeah, a better yeah, director yeah. than Ron but, Howard. But I mean, Clint Eastwood's another guy kind of like Ron Howard where, you know, 
at at this point he likes telling stories. Yeah. But I think if you if you said to Clint, you can't make another movie. Did uh, you know that uh, in the Heart of the Sea, Ron Howard demanded it be delayed? Really? Because he wanted to be on a better spot so more people could see it. Okay. Well, I don't know. It's probably wrong to say he doesn't have any passion or anything, but uh, uh, the. the the movies just don't have blood pumping in their veins. They don't. Know? Like, just look at something like Splash. A oh. movie that people consider a classic. Like, people love Splash. Well, because they haven't seen it in 30 years. <laughs> unlike me. So, Justin watched 10 or 12 movies for this podcast because he's insane, clinically. Because uh, I was looking for that movie that would be the skeleton key to Ron Howard's well, directorial personality. Because you watch one Ron Howard movie and you're like, okay, this has got to be minor Howard. <laughs> Where I got what's the major Howard and it never materializes me uh, because I don't have limitless time. I thought, uh, why don't I watch Ron Howard the, the way he was meant to be seen and have the Ron Howard Netflix experience? <laughs> watch three movies that are on Netflix. So I watched Splash. I watched Parenthood. And I revisited a little movie called Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which I flatly told Will when I learned that he watched it. I will not be participating in this event. <laughs> so let's talk about Splash, which is probably his first big blockbuster, right? Yeah, coming after Night Shift, which I think uh, underperformed at the box office. Yeah. Uh, Splash kind of blew up mm -hmm. and made Ron Howard a director to be watched. It's a magical realism tale of Tom Hanks having sex with a mute woman that just comes out of nowhere. Yeah, just this this woman played by Daryl Hannah who appears on the shores of Manhattan uh, totally naked and he agrees to take her in and uh, have his way with her. <laughs> that's right. Um, and then he finds out she's a mermaid. Yep. And that's pretty much the movie. <laughs> so first of all, Ron Howard snuck a little bit of nipple into a PG rated movie. Twice. Twice. Uh, and you see her butt too. <laughs> Her, the, the butt scene was the one scene I remembered from seeing this movie as a child. <laughs> because, listen, when you're a child and you're watching PG movies and a butt shows up in Splash, you remember it. Maybe that's what Ron Howard, his true passion was, was getting those nips and butts in there <laughs> for the kiddies. I don't know, the rest of his movies... Uh... But, like, Splash is not a movie for kids, either. Because it's just about Tom Hanks having sex with Daryl Hannah. John Candy is in the movie... So, he loves sex too. Yeah, he uh, he's a real horn dog in the film, and it's nice to see John Candy. He plays Tom Hanks's brother, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, just not a very interesting movie. It's kind of slow, kind of boring. Not a lot of jokes, not a lot of laughs. What it does have is young Tom Hanks. More importantly, it has young Daryl Hannah, who I thought was totally charming in this film. I would agree with you. I so two stars out of five. <laughs> I thought that she was uh, she was a delight. Couldn't take my eyes off her, and uh, she had some real chemistry with Tom Hanks, and that's that's it. Yeah, that's it. And it was kind of nice when Eugene Levy and John Candy were on screen together because it made me think of SCTV, <laughs> which you, I like more. Yeah, but e Eugene Levy is not good in this movie. He's not funny. He's, no. he's kind of an unlikable presence. So I also watched Cocoon, which was also a massive hit that came right after Splash. And all I'm gonna say about that is not good. Didn't like it. What, what didn't you like about it? I didn't find it emotionally compelling which is what it's going for i enjoyed uh hanging out with the olds which the movie is about it's mm -hmm. about a bunch of older people in a senior retirement home find a pool with these uh, uh gross looking cocoons in them find out that if they uh take a dip in these waters they'll feel young again mm -hmm. i never watched the movie because i always assume that they like de-aged like that steven spielberg kicked the can segment mm -hmm. that's in the twilight zone movie that is not the case wilford brimley remains wilford brimley and, uh, yeah, nothing much happens. There's not much conflict. At the end, they go up into space, a.k.a. heaven. 
All right. I saw my grandpa last week, so that's fine. <laughs> okay. Was he like feeling younger and like dunking? Oh, far and from it. Yeah, no, but, but that's my old person quotient for uh, for the next little while. I mean, the Goot is also in the movie, Steve Gutenberg. Oh, God. And what they a all... run Steve Gutenberg had in the 80s, by the way, because did you know, this is off topic, but did you know that Three Men and a Baby was the number one top grossing movie of the year that came out? Like, <laughs> that, I did not know 1987, that. 1987, I think. I blame it on the ghost that appears in the film. Have you ever heard that uh, anecdote? Oh, yeah, I, I did hear that, that urban myth. <laughs> uh, I mean, the Goot also appeared in The Cocoon, The Return. Uh, the Darryl... Goot. I've never heard him <laughs> referred to as the Goot. And Daryl Hannah and Tom Hanks did not return in Splash 2. Splash T-O-O. And it made for t- you know who the they... poster looks like one of those cheap Italian ripoffs. Yeah. They should have got Peter Scolari. Oh, yeah, they should have. Yeah, that would have been funny. I, I, I No, it wouldn't have. <laughs> it would have been terrible. So, back on the Netflix train... You did watch Parenthood. I was kind of excited would <laughs> You're be like, the wrong Steve Martin word. Is funny. Yes, that's that's why I watched it. That's the thing about Ron Howard film. They have amazing casts. Well, last week we watched the paper and one name after another in the opening credits. Catherine O'Hara. Glenn, yes. Glenn Close. Uh, oh my God. Who's the monologist? Spalding Gray yeah. shows up. It's like, holy shit. Spalding Gray <laughs> is in this movie? This is a stacked cast, and, uh, you know, nobody is that great in it. Yeah, because they don't have that much to do. Parenthood, it's got Steve Martin, Rick Moranis, Diane Weist, Tom Hulse. By the way, Diane Weist's presence is an indication that this is Ron Howard trying to do Hannah and her sisters. <laughs> the which, Woody Alley classic. Which is a hilarious thought, <laughs> because it's it's like three sets of families uh, and kind of a dramedy about their trials and tribulations. And Steve Martin brings the laughs, right? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I, this is Steve Martin in his affable phase. <laughs> Every time I see Steve Martin in these kind of studio comedies, all I can think of is how much loathing he must be, like, filled on the inside. There was a period when Steve Martin was getting a lot of Lifetime Achievement Awards. He got an honorary Oscar. He got the AFI tribute. And that surprised me because I don't think his body of work in film is nearly as strong as Bill Murray's or certain other people from that generation. I think Steve Martin is primarily great as a stand-up and uh, to a lesser extent as a writer and in a lot of other media he's made good movies especially at the start of his career like the jerk mm-hmm. uh, but uh, planes trains and automobiles oh that's a great film actually yeah. but uh but i don't know like he he's also made so many movies like this and roxanne who and can remember la story these kind of weak sauce who could forget novocaine <laughs> uh, that was his bid for kind of like the Bill Murray second act. Well, and in Parenthood, he doesn't have much to do. Nobody does. He's in his tidy whities at one point. Do you remember that scene? <laughs> and the film, like every Ron Howard film I watch, is two plus hours. Oh my God. Well, as I was watching Parenthood, I thought this is the kind of movie that I might watch in a motel. And then... <laughs> And then Tom Hulse showed up and I was like, oh, Amadeus himself. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. I have seen this in a motel. <laughs> did you? Yeah, I actually did. Well, I saw like, you know what it is? It. It's like when you go to like a cabin or something, you rent it out and they have VHS tapes. Like Parenthood is going to be in there. Parenthood, the number nine top grossing film of 1989. That's insane. It made $100 million. And I don't know, what did people grasp onto in this film? Because it's, you know, it just shows how difficult it is raising kids. I mean, there's just, this is the kind of movie where, like, Diane Weist is looking through uh, her son's room and she pulls out a VHS and she finds in it is a porno tape. <laughs> and then a grandmother comes in and she's like, oh, oh, give me what she's having. Or what's the scene when the lights go out and then the lights come back on and somebody's holding a dildo and, and they have to take it away and the grandma is like, or so, somebody says, 
that whatever that was, it was sure big. And the grandma goes, it sure was. And you're supposed and- <laughs> There's like a pause for a laugh on yeah. the Marx Brothers movie. It's just so lame. I mean, at least back in those days, as I pointed out to Will, you could still make jokes about school shootings. Oh yeah, there's a whole fantasy scene <laughs> about a school shooting, which hit a, a really strange note in this film, because so much of it is this kind of like sub Woody Allen-ish dramedy tone. And then there there are these occasional flights of absurdist comedy. Well, what about talking about the seriousness of the film when oh, Keanu yeah. Reeves gives a monologue oh, yeah. about how his dad used to treat him? He's or what about the fact that Tom Hulse as uh, Steve... <laughs> well, Ma- I wouldn't consider that the serious part. Well, Steve Martin's kind of loser brother. We find out that Tom Hulse is like $20,000 in debt to, to a bookie and he's going to be killed if Jason <laughs> Robards doesn't doesn't give him the money that also struck a strange note in the film i thought well that's a note that ron howard hits over and over and over again in the films i saw like backdraft which i'm sure you haven't seen no. is this massive pyrotechnic kind of roller coaster about firemen and the plot is about like a serial killer going around murdering people with fire man i should have watched backdraft because that has, i think you would have enjoyed that it. has kurt russell in it robert de niro Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, man. I should have watched that. Well, I'll never see it now because there's there's no reason Scott to. Scott Glenn, starring William Baldwin. Okay. Hey, if, if I have any friends who are listening to this who want to watch Backdraft it, with me, let's do this. It's a lot of fun, but it also brought up an issue that I have with a lot of these Ron Howard films, which is I could just be watching like a better version of this film. Yeah. And with Backdraft, Johnny Toe's Lifeline. Sure. Which is an amazing movie. And it just, which has that kind of grittiness that none of Ron Howard's films has, that he seems almost unable to deliver, which he attempts to do later in his career, which we'll talk about. But you watched uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And how was your experience with this film this time? Um, well, it Did was a laugh. Uh, no, it was interesting watching it outside of the context of Jim Carrey's white hot superstardom. Because this was kind of in the Indian summer of his period. Wasn't of this stardom. like his death knell, pretty much? Well, far? well, The Grinch, first of all, the number one movie of the year 2000. <laughs> of the year? Yes, it was the number one movie of the year. It made $260 million. What, like, like Monkey Paul wished and Ron Howard make? I just want to be a successful director. Oh, you will. So, you will. So he, so was there, there was The Grinch, and then there was Bruce Almighty, and then it was kind of a downward slope Oof, for Jim Carrey. The Majestic. The Maj- Number 23. Yeah. Um, so w- watching Jim Carrey in this film, like Ron Howard is trying so hard to pad out this 20 page Dr. Seuss book <laughs> into a feature film. So we get these endless scenes of Jim Carrey in this full body green suit, like jumping around his lair riffing. <laughs> and if you're watching this outside of the context of Jim Carrey being the biggest star in the world... It's impossible to understand how anyone thought this was funny. Well, I remember as a kid not thinking it was funny. Like, you would have to be on board with the idea that Jim Carrey is the funniest guy in the world <laughs> to think this is funny. Because you, you'll you be remembering him from other films yeah. and projecting that onto it. Did you try to follow it up with a double bill of your other favorite comedian, the Mike Myers in <laughs> The Cat in the Hat? Uh, incred- I watched a few clips on YouTube, actually. Did you? <laughs> Because I've never seen The Cat in the Hat. Wow. That's shocking. I think I was just too old for it by the time it came out. So The Grinch, the one thing I kind of liked about it is it's one of the last of those blockbuster movies that shot on a big, goofy cartoon set. Love it. Like Batman or The Flintstones. Yeah. But it looks awful. And Ron Howard shoots everything in low light. So everything looks kind of dingy. Or at least it looked (laughs) that way on Netflix. It looks kind of dingy and 
ugly and nightmarish and everything just looks like styrofoam and all the who's in the film are given these monstrous snouts i don't know why he did that he should have just like don't they have little noses in the book and in the cartoon well they're monstrous the way they look in the film yeah uh and he shoots everything in this kind of Terry Gilliam style where it's all... You know, it's goofy. Off-kilter camera angles. We've like, seen that in films like Battlefield Earth and Thor, where it's like, ah, it's like a comic book, right? Can't yeah. that angle. But there's kind of no coherence to the visual style of the film. And to say nothing of the fact that this uh, very modest story is just stretched out to the point where it doesn't even make sense anymore. Two hours? I think it's like a hundred minutes or so, but there's this whole midsection of the film where like, so in the book, it makes sense. The Grinch, he's stayed in his hideout all these years. He hasn't been interacting with the who's in the film. The Grinch regularly comes down to Whoville to play pranks. And then there's a whole midsection of the film where the Grinch tries to reingratiate himself into society. And then we get a whole like backstory about the Grinch how the Grinch came to be. <laughs> oh, that how, famous Grinch baby. Yeah, how he was bullied by the other kids and how he was in love with C- Christine Berinsky. It, 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 doesn't make, it doesn't make sense. And in this story, the Whos are all greedy consumerists as opposed to... In what, the, that's the absolute opposite of what the Yeah, and at the end of the movie, is. Bill Irwin has to tell them, don't you see, Christmas isn't about the gifts, it's about uh, being together. And then they then they become who they are in the book. Anyway, the message of the movie that's against consumerism it was pretty ridiculous given what a marketing bonanza this film was <laughs> at the time. And I think this gets back to one of Ron Howard's weaknesses as, as a director is he doesn't really believe in this story. Uh, I mean, this is one of those movies. Ron Howard's kind of a one for them, one for me kind of guy. This is definitely a one for them. And uh, th- there doesn't seem to be a lot of passion here. It's seen as, oh, this is this is a perfect kind of marketing opportunity. We've got Jim Carrey. We've got a hot property, the Dr. Seuss book. Uh, this movie's going to make a lot of money. It's going to sell a lot of toys. But there's there's nothing behind it. I mean, Ron Howard has done competent films. Oh, sure. Almost inching on good. I like Apollo 13 a lot. The Grinch is, frankly, the only one of his films I've seen that I think I would call flatly incompetent. I mean, I didn't revisit Ed TV. I, I've seen Ed TV, not lately. It's, you know, not very good, like most of his films. I saw Ransom. I enjoyed it. Mel Gibson gives an insane performance in it. Did you see The Da Vinci Code when it came out? I did. I remember almost nothing about it. The flaws of The Da Vinci Code are well documented. Uh, Tom Hanks' haircut. Tom Hanks' haircut. No chemistry between the leads. Just kind of a... I mean, Dan Brown is not a very good storyteller to begin with, so the movie has this very episodic almost serial structure to it where it's one thing after another and then a lot of kind of uh, didactic scenes of people explaining what symbols mean i don't know why ron howard returned to the well twice more money this no i think this frankly speaks poorly of ron howard as a thinker and as an artist because this was after a beautiful mind academy award winning a beautiful mind yeah like ron howard had a lot of clout at this time and he chooses to make the da vinci code well i think it's because he had two flops preceding it which were the missing his uh western which is not good that's a flop but cinderella man came after the da vinci code i think nope before oh okay So two flops and he's like, I got to do one for them. All right. Well, I don't know. It's a terrible film. It is. The Vinci Code is not good. I did get to watch Inferno. Oh, God. His uh, newest take on the Da Vinci Code, which 
a third time, Ron? Yeah. A third time? And where he switches up the kind of boring visual style of the original, he tries to change it with like handheld cameras and chase sequences and weird action beats, and it's not good. Let's talk about Ron Howard a little bit as a storyteller, though, because if Ron Howard has any strength at all, I mean, he is a self-described storyteller. Let's talk about A Beautiful Mind which neither of us revisited for this podcast. Oh, yeah, I barely remember it. But A Beautiful Mind, I think, kind of encapsulates a lot of what's good and what's bad about Ron Howard. Uh, he does, a, it's a story that works, like the big reveal at the midpoint that Paul Bettany and Ed Harris have been uh, Russell Crowe's schizophrenic delusions works. Uh, it's, it's a big shock. And Ron Howard does kind of a, you know, in a stupid way, a kind of clever visualization of schizophrenia. But also, the way he visualizes schizophrenia, I mean, frankly, it is stupid because this guy only has two delusions and he's able to master it by saying, oh, well, these two guys don't age. Therefore, I beat schizophrenia. (laughs) That's not how schizophrenia works. It's not that easy. Like you said, when you're talking about Ron Howard as a storyteller, all of his movies tie up in a neat bow at the Mm -hmm. end. Ron Howard has gone on record saying that one of the most helpful processes is test screening them for audiences. Mm -hmm. For people that don't know what test screenings are, it's you show a movie, usually in a work print or rough cut state, to an audience. They fill out cards about what they like and what they didn't like. And then the director goes over them and imposes them if he feels the need to. Ron Howard states in the Grand Theft Auto commentary that he has final cut on his films, but he loves this process because it allows him to fine tune the picture. But all test screenings really do is allow you to dilute a film until it pleases everybody. Yeah. Well, a movie like Frost Nixon, he makes the puzzling decision to include a lot of interview sequences like staged interviews he'll have like oliver platt playing the historical figure in a fake interview and he'll say things like the frost nixon interview was the conviction that america never got after watergate it's just and that should be the subtext that should be for the audience to figure out but no he has somebody say it there's no ambiguity because howard just wants the audience to get it like no one leaves a ron howard movie going well i thought this and someone goes well i thought this yeah that's not gonna happen so this leads me to wonder is he a good director for star wars because what do you want from star wars do you want one man's eccentric vision like george lucas okay Mm -hmm. you do but it's terrible or do you want a group of talented craftsmen to create a pleasing product to entertain you What's funny about Star Wars is, other than George Lucas, the film is a factory line. Even Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi were directed by George Lucas' teacher and a British journeyman. Mm -hmm. So if Star Wars wants to go forward and they hire someone like Ron Howard, they're just, you know, towing the line like they've always been. But But you'll have Ron Howard, a capable craftsman, a guy who can lead a big group of people, big group of talented artisans uh, putting together a movie that will probably be fun. But the thing about Ron Howard films and the best journeyman projects can do this is that Ron Howard's films are not compelling. No. And that's a big problem because mm. like the best journeyman can do something that's compelling mm. and be like, I'm engaged in this, even if I feel this is work for hire. You know, what's funny about the last five or 10 years of Ron Howard's career. You can see him trying to experiment. Yeah. Like he did a movie like The Dilemma, which is starts as a comedy with Vince Vaughn and, and Paul Blart. 
uh, mall cop <laughs> and, and then turns into this weird dark drama about infidelity or he did he did a movie like in the heart of the sea yeah which is a literary style uh, adaptation but but for all the experimenting they, they're all just you know for a guy who's trying so hard to try so many different kinds of things they all just aren't that interesting ron howard says <laughs> in an interview on a documentary for the film the missing yeah i went deep guys <laughs> oh, that he sees films and i've heard this before but hearing ron howard say it had like a tinge of sadness making films is about compromise and i think that if you're gonna like define ron howard cinema compromise is a great word to go to slap on all of it mm-hmm. that even while he's doing this crazy stuff like the missing is an old school western when those weren't popular like we hadn't gotten into that wave yet of stuff like 310 to yuma Mm -hmm. and the proposition and stuff like that which makes the missing so interesting because this is a film that ron howard wants to make he wants to be john ford ron howard made a 70 millimeter movie about like tom cruise as an irishman falling in love with (laughs) nicole kidman Mm -hmm. Like he he's trying stuff, but he's just not succeeding, and that's what's frustrating about yeah. it. He's just not that interesting a guy. Yeah, I guess so. I bet you he's super nice. Oh, he seems very nice. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that's Ron that, Howard. That's that's how you know that it, it things are bad when you're reduced to saying, "Well, this guy seems nice." <laughs> <laughs> Will I keep going to see every new Ron Howard movie that comes out? No, no. I've definitely missed a bunch in the last few years. But you know what's a, a probably an above average Ron Howard movie? Rush. I've heard good things. Yeah. He's actually experimenting with the way he's telling a story and very, very enjoyable. If you heard this podcast and you go, man, Will and Justin were so mean against Ron. Ron's doing fine. (laughs) Yeah, he's doing fine. He can buy and sell my ass. He still has books written about him. Uh, Beverly Gray, who wrote the amazing Roger Corman book, wrote a book about Ron Howard. I respect what Ron Howard has been able to achieve. Uh, You know, coming from being Opie on the Andy Griffith show uh, to becoming one of the biggest directors in Hollywood. Uh, If I were his mother, I'd be very proud of him. (laughs) Or his father, who appears in almost all of his films. Rance Howard from Ed Wood. (laughs) A Uh, big explosion. (laughs) Sky full of smoke. So we got some letters this week. And before I forget, if you have any questions or comments, Ron Howard Defenders. Ron? (laughs) He's like, I will destroy you. It's Arrested Development. (laughs) That's not even close. I don't want to get sued. Yeah. Uh, We did get a letter this week, and it goes... Hey guys, love the podcast. I've been binging all the episodes in the past months and even joined the Patreon. Thanks for all the content, even though your theme song still irks me for personal reasons. In university, I took a controversial cinema class and have seen many movies I watched covered on your podcast. Example, Fat Girl, Deep Throat, Cannibal Holocaust, etc. Did we cover Deep Throat? I think we uh, mentioned it in passing when we talked about Radley Metzger. Okay. Uh, However, the strangest movie I saw in that class and ever was Sweet Movie, directed by Duzan Makavijev. Have you seen this movie? It's crazy. Please discuss. Uh, I want to see it. I've never seen it. I I haven't seen his other one, WR, Mysteries of the Organism, either. I saw Sweet Movie a long time ago, so uh, it's probably going to be something we'll have to talk about in a future podcast. I've seen uh, Deep Throat. Do you want to Have you seen Deep Throat? (laughs) Uh, I did a long time ago. Okay. Harry Reams, comedy okay, genius. Okay, here's, I actually want to say this. Here's my problem with Deep Throat. The central dilemma of the plot gets solved too early. Okay. And then, and then it kind of spins its wheels for the next two thirds. You're more of a suspense man when it came to, comes to porno, right? Uh, well, I believe in, if you're going to... Came, if, comes, if, that's a joke. If you're going to uh, introduce a three-act structure, like, follow through on it. <laughs> 
So if you were a film critic at the time, you'd be like two and a half stars out of five. Uh, probably. Well, you, I, 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 why is Deep Throat the movie? You've done more research into this than me. That like broke that barrier and it became uh, cool to go see porn films. Uh, I was the right movie at the right time. Mm-hmm. It was probably uh, it, it was one of the early hardcore feature films. And it was actually uh, I mean, I haven't done uh, I, haven't, I haven't seen all the hardcore fil- porn films of the time. But it, it was at that point probably the most professional looking mm-hmm. hardcore feature film porn movie uh, up to that point. Like the word stag movies. And then. So, so because this movie started playing, I think Al Goldstein reviewed it for Screw Magazine, which was a magazine that had a certain amount of underground cachet at the time. And, and how many? He gave it 100% on the Peter meter. <laughs> and then Roger Ebert in his review for Deep Throat says, I think the way he said it is, uh, Andy Warhol told Truman Capote he shouldn't miss it. Or maybe it was Mike Nichols told Truman Capote wow. he, shouldn't, he shouldn't miss it. And then word got around. <laughs> that, 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 that's the way it was described. Something like that. All right. Well, we'll save the rest for our Linda Lovelace episode. We should do a Linda Lovelace episode. Did she act much after no, Deep Throat? No. no. She wrote a lot of biographies. Have you read any of them? I've read all four because I wrote an article about it once. Wow. Yeah. Where could people read that article? It's on Hazlitt. Classy. Classy, yeah. Well, thank you very much for your letter, April at Mansky. So next week, we're going to be doing pre-code Hollywood. Mm. I think uh, Babyface. Red-headed woman. Red-headed woman. Uh, oh, have you seen uh, Six of a Kind? No, I haven't. Uh, so we'll watch, uh, yeah. watch that one too. Uh, should we look at horror at all? Uh, we, I kind of I don't want to preempt like a Todd Browning episode. Yeah, I don't think we need to touch horror too much because movies like Babyface and Red-headed Woman are ones that we haven't really talked about since we started the Important yeah. Cinema Club. So, And we actually talked about pre-code horror, if you're a Patreon subscriber, when we did Island of Lost Souls. That's right. And if you're not a Patreon subscriber, get on Patreon and drop that $5 a month for four exclusive episodes every month. This week, we revisited John Woo uh, because Will felt a little bit guilty about the performance he gave on the John Woo Michael Bay episode we did all the way at the beginning. And we watched Bullet in the Head. Uh, if you haven't seen it, watch it. It's a classic. And then listen to our episode, because it's great. I have to correct myself from a few minutes ago. It's Three on a Match from 1932, not Six of a Kind. Six of a Kind is a W.C. Fields film. <laughs> okay. Three on a Match is from 1932. Wouldn't a W.C. Fields film still be technically pre-code? Uh, he made plenty of movies after the code, too. Oh, there you go. So, next week, pre-code Hollywood. And until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. One thing that me and Will have kind of talked off, Mike, is that we don't usually mention the idea of guilty pleasures on this podcast. Well, I mean, like like any sensible person, we probably don't believe in the idea of guilty pleasures, right? If you like it, it's... Yeah. It's, it's almost cliche to say even that, but yeah. Because I think that like when you talk about guilty pleasures, all it makes me think is... I am better than this movie that I'm watching. Yeah, exactly. And that's always something that I had a weird problem with, especially like we talked about last week about stuff where it's like, wow, we're making fun of bad movies. Yeah. And it's something that I've always been a little bit weirded out about, especially that as someone who watches movies, like when I was in college, one of the first things that I did was go, well, I have to challenge myself. Mm -hmm. I have to watch difficult movies Mm -hmm. because this form needs to take value. Well, it also implies that there's some universally accepted standard of what constitutes a good movie and what constitutes a guilty pleasure. Where, like, what what would people even call a guilty pleasure? Like, is 
I don't know. To, it's something like Evil Dead Two: A Guilty Pleasure. I mean, that's a canonical classic. At this well, now point. it is, but maybe yeah. when it came out, they said, "Oh, you know, I know it's bad, but it's a guilty pleasure." Yeah. I mean, like people use it a lot when it comes to television when they watch kind of like yeah. trashy TV shows, like The Bachelor and stuff. Yeah, like that. right. Like, because otherwise, I, I feel like the high culture low culture divide has been so thoroughly demolished. But have you ever had to like defend your taste? When it comes to stuff that you love and someone just kind of dismisses it offhand. I mean, I'm sure I have, um, but I don't know. The the the, I, the stuff I like always seems perfectly sensible to me to like it until somebody says otherwise. But like you, I know that it kind of like gets your ire up when someone says like, oh, this is bad. Something like Jerry Lewis, for example. Do you think that time has treated him fairly enough now that when you say, oh, this movie is a classic, you don't have any kind of pushback from anybody else? Well, if I said it around certain types of people, I would definitely get a pushback. Like, I feel like the idea of like, oh, the French love Jerry Lewis. That's, well, that's very dismissive. But right? that's still a cliche you hear from people who don't know movies. Yeah. But, but if you go on Twitter now on film Twitter, Ugh. quotation marks, if you say you like Jerry Lewis on film Twitter like you'll get a lot of support. Like he's been, he's become pretty fashionable, I think among certain kinds of critics. But have you ever felt pressure? And I, I know that I have when like I go into deep holes of, I'm just going to watch Kung Fu movies for two weeks. Yeah. Like uh, I need to watch something good, especially in the idea of today where it's like social media and basically people feel the need to share everything that they're watching on something like Letterboxd, mm-hmm. which I take great joy in adding stuff. I actually find I, I hear it more if you talk about old movies. Mm. I think there are a lot of people, people who aren't really into movies, who almost think of old movies as, why would you watch old movies? That's like having an old iPod. Mm. Like it's an obsolete technology. Do you sort see of that thing. still these days? Uh, Maybe o- I just isolated myself. Only people. amongst people who aren't like cinephiles. Yeah. You know, like the f- for them, you know, there, there are plenty of people for whom like the idea of a silent movie would baffle them yeah it's it's nothing but a museum curio as opposed to a living artwork or something like even something like citizen kane i i think a lot of people who aren't really into movies would look at that as being like well that's obsolete technology it's the same kind of people who would be dismissive of black and white yeah because they would say well there's color now and that's simply uh the next stage of the evolution and and these are people who don't really think about movies as art they think about movies as something to watch on netflix on a friday night But on that note, like even just being somewhere on Facebook, I remember kind of reacting pretty violently when someone will say, oh, like you just like Kung Fu movies, right? Like this isn't Mm. really your thing. Or even someone going, I disagree with everything you say. So I'm really surprised that you like this movie. It always kind of takes me aback a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, you like to think that you have reasons for liking the things you like. (laughs) Yeah. And that you don't like... We've talked about this before, like coming off as like a snob. Do yeah. you find that idea that like, do you ever think of that? Like, huh, this this will sound like snobbish if I say this opinion. Um, I I, pro- I probably think about it, but and you're like, <laughs> but, but <laughs> I don't I, care. I, I, I don't give I don't give a shit. But one thing that I guess kind of pisses me off is you know when stuff like uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or Kill Bill were coming out, you would hear uh, uh, certain yeah. mainstream critics say stuff like, well, this really elevates the genre. Fuck you! Yeah, it's like, yeah, fuck you. Like, like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which is a really good movie, but it but it was also kind of like a General Tao's chicken. Yeah, like, written by a white guy. <laughs> yeah, like, I think Anthony Lane in The New Yorker is an excellent example of somebody like that, because he, 
it, when writing about Crouching Tiger in his review, he dismissively referred to the Bruce Lee jamborees or something, or, <laughs> or something like that. And how can you how can you have two eyes and think that a Bruce Lee movie is the same as like a Wuxia like swordplay? But that's like what you brought up before, right? Is that it's impossible to go through life without having that kernel of belief that everybody kind of sees stuff the same way. Mm-hmm. That, like, if you tell someone, oh, well, this movie's really good, you probably just assume they haven't seen it. And when they will, they'll have an opinion similar to yours. Yeah, yeah. And when they don't, sometimes you're like, whoa, what? Like, what? Yeah. And I, I, I have friends that that would always happen, especially when it comes to stuff like horror movies, where they're being evaluated on different criterias. And I'll be like, that is really boring. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, 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 it's great. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, I don't understand why you like this. I, I have a funny story. I was at uh, work and a bunch of us at work were having lunch and Robin Williams came up and like we were joking about Mrs. Doubtfire. And I said, yeah, I watched a... I watched Mrs. Staffire again after he died, and I gotta say, it really didn't hold up. It wasn't. It was. It, it, were you? Were you? Uh, was the response just kind of like stares? Like, well, what? no. I mean, most of us were kind of like riffing on Mrs. Doubtfire for a while, but there, but one person at the table said, "Oh, this is why I don't like to talk about movies around you because you're really knowledgeable." And I don't know. I like Mrs. Doubtfire, and, <laughs> and I, I actually felt really bad about that because I don't know if you like Miss. I don't want to. I don't want to make so, people feel bad for so, liking Mrs. Doubtfire. But like, you definitely make people feel bad and i do too was like comments you put on twitter or facebook people don't have to follow me oh is that is that the logic that you have like yeah i mean if you don't if if, if the stuff i'm saying makes you feel terrible yeah why follow me but i've had friends go uh you just always dismiss everything out of hand and you make snap judgments and i'm like do i no. well i have opinions and yeah. i've thought about my opinions and i've i've 28 hard-earned years of life experience that have brought me to these opinions. But you're willing to change that opinion, right? Sure. Because we had a a mutual friend of ours that recently asked me, why do you watch movies that you don't like again? And I'm like, well, like, everybody likes it, and I want to watch it and go, why do I not like it? Yeah. Like, it happened recently with Blade Runner, where, I mean, this time I'm like, I'm done. Like, I don't like Blade Runner. Like, I don't need to watch it anymore. And there have definitely been movies that I've... uh, returned to over different periods of my life and looking had... for something else well i remember the first time i saw this is a really highbrow example but the first time i saw chaplin's monsieur verdu when i was i think 11 or 12 <laughs> where's the slapstick i was a little baffled by it it was and but i kept watching it over and over again almost like hoping to find it funny and now it's one of my favorite movies of all time because after a while you start to figure out what it's doing <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd like to bring up examples as well, but they're all very embarrassing of movies that I uh, keep going back to. Yeah. Well, I, I, ju- I just, uh, if I can give you a, a funnier example, I just watched um, uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang again last night for the, <laughs> for the first time, crack that time. code? And I got to tell you, it worked like a charm for me, just did like it? it did when I was five. I've well, never seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I don't watch it now. Like the, like the only reason to watch it at this point would be, well, actually, I was going to say the only reason to watch it would be out of nostalgia, but I was looking at Ken Adams' sets. Ken Adams did. Uh, Doc- oh yeah, all the James Do- Bond films, and he and stuff did Doctor like Strange Love. Yeah. Wow, the sets in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang are incredible. <laughs> How do they compare to something like The Grinch? Well, it's hard to tell what the sets of The Grinch are really like because Ron Howard shoots them so poorly. 